When you look at financial crime, in many ways, it's a very exciting topic. It, it's a very dark topic. But if you look at the threat it presents, the purpose of any researcher is to try to identify good practice, bad practice, based upon a very good methodology, but then to try to present the solution to the problem. Welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance, and financial crime to the real world. The money. I'm your host, Marit Radovan, CEO of Strice, and in this episode, we are looking at the dark money at the heart of the UK university system. According to the World University Rankings, the University of Oxford is currently the top higher learning institution in the world, and two more British universities also make it into the top 10. But new research has exposed how these prestigious places of learning, and many more across the UK, are under threat from money linked to global terrorism and crime. From students becoming money mules to a no-questions-asked approach to cash payments on tuition fees and accommodation, students and universities are being exploited by financial and organized criminals. So... How do we get here? How is this impacting the universities and their students? And what can be done to combat it? To dive into this topic, we took a flight from Oslo to London and a train from London St. Pancras to Wales to speak to Nicholas Ryder, professor of law at Cardiff University. We started the conversation by asking the professor to explain his background and his connection to this research. I've been an academic uh, for far too long, probably two decades plus, I think. And I, I started researching financial regulation and consumer credit as part of my early career, my PhD. And then I sort of branched into financial crime after the terrorist attacks in 9-11. So that's how I became interested within the area. And since then, it's just become a really important part of my job, my teaching. Um, I'm very passionate about the subject. So I've been lucky enough to be involved in multiple research projects over a, a vast array of financial crime, and, and that's been the past two decades. It feels more of a hobby than a job. Um, so in many ways, I'm very lucky to be able to to teach um, this and advise corporations and, and entities on the topic. Super interesting. What is it that gets you so passionate about this topic? You mentioned that it's also a hobby. Yeah, I, I think that when you look at um, financial crime, in many ways, it's a very exciting topic. It, it's a very dark topic in terms of uh, money laundering, organized crime, terrorism, fraud, and so on. But if you look at the threat it presents, I suppose the the purpose of any researcher is to try to identify good practice, bad practice, based upon a very good methodology, but then to try to present the solution to the problem. So with you know any papers I've written on, if it's money laundering or terrorism and fraud, you're looking for that originality. So how does your work differ from the other fantastic work written by academics uh, across the world? And I'm very privileged to be able to teach that to our students in Cardiff as part of our master's and our degree. Um, and also it's about raising awareness of the threat it can present, but also from their employability perspective as well, once they finish their degree or their master's. Interesting. So the newest research you've done regarding, you know, universities being... Uh, vulnerable to money laundering and um, uh, an organized crime. How did it come to your attention? Because I can imagine it's not just a topic you 
you know, check for the sake of checking. You must have had, like, what got you into this? Did you hear a story, then you follow the trail, or how did you get into it? Well, the, the first um, sort of way we got into the topic, so we as a team, we looked at it, was the Times Expose four or five years ago. So they did a freedom of information request to universities, and they found that the universities had accepted approximately £52 million over a five-year period, and obviously clear front news of the Times, the Telegraph, and, and we got, let's pick up on that. And then I was involved as part of a government-funded project by Innovate UK, where we were looking at the links between organised crime, local authorities, and fraud. And I remember that we were looking at sort of some cases and examples that we found about how OCGs would... What's OCGs? Organised criminal gangs, yeah. sorry. Great. So what they will try to commit fraud or proceed to, to finance their so-called lavish lifestyle laws. Some people call it a champagne lifestyle, where they've got no disposable income, but yet they have a brand new car. They have holidays, expensive watches. So that's sort of inmates that some people perceive of these people. And we found the link between some cases where students had been uh, either accused of money laundering or they'd been induced into a money laundering scam or had actually been part of an organised criminal gang. So we thought, well, let's, as part of the methodology, look at uh, what's been written as what's called a literature review. And we could not find any UK-based study or European study or even an American study that looked at, well, how do universities protect themselves from being involved in money laundering indirectly? And more importantly, how do they protect students? in terms of the vulnerability of students. So it's kind of two things here. One is, of course, the universities being involved in money laundering, accepting cash that comes from uh, criminal activity. And then the other part, which is students being actively or um, recruited as money yeah. mules. So it's yeah. those two topics. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So bringing those together, we, we sort of, there was some good literature in the US that reports by, uh, by various NGOs indicating sort of allegations of some universities across the world accepting cash payments from politically exposed persons who are high risk from a money laundering perspective and other allegations that certain individuals had laundered money via institutions across the world. So we looked at, well, how can we maybe investigate this? And, and we thought that one of the best mechanisms would be a freedom of information request. Um, to all universities. So you basically went out to all the universities in the UK and asked for them to, you know, join the research and reply to your, your yeah, questions. Yeah, we, we sort of asked them a set of questions. So, for example, one one question was, do you have an AML policy? Another question would have been, do you train members of staff? Do you make students aware? So it, it's trying to identify what universities and what the students can do to protect themselves from being potentially abused by money launderers and all fraudsters, because again, we couldn't find any any empirical study that looked at this. So ultimately, we were looking at, so a key part of the project was, does the law actually apply to universities? And it's not a very simple question, no. straightforward question so to does, understand. So does it apply? Our research suggests, no, it doesn't. Um, so out of 110 universities which applied... 110? To the FOI Oh, request, wow, that's quite a, a big number. Yeah, we were pleased with the responses. Um, we found only two universities thought they were a high-value dealer under the money laundering regulations because the regulations are silent on whether they apply to universities or not. Mm. But we also found then that a lot of universities will be authorised by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, which, of course, contains a wide range of financial crime compliance issues under the 
systems and control or SYSE part of, of their handbook. So you can see that the regulations could apply with the FCA, but from a regulations perspective, we concluded that the regulations did not apply. So universities are therefore not under a legal duty to submit the suspicious activity report, but many of them do because of the, you know, it's very good practice them to be involved in tackling money laundering and so on. So how many of the 110 universities said that they had filed a suspicious activity report um, at some we point? We found that it was a, a small number uh, and that sort of was replicated within the National Crime Agency's own uh, annual reports um, and from conversations that we've had with, with the NCA about their own ideas, we found that uh, I think it's fair to say they were maybe concerned that not enough SARS are submitted across the sector. Mm. But of course, you know, what can be defined as suspicion is not an easy term to define. The courts offer limited guidance. So you went out, 110 universities asked all these questions. So how did the universities reply? Were they even like aware of this? Did they even think they were possible vulnerable or what was the initial reaction? Um, I think it's fair to say that universities are very well aware of the regulations and a if not near 100%, a large percentage of them have in place an anti-money laundering, counter-fraud, counter-terrorism financing strategy. Uh, universities must have in place a counter-bribery strategy. They must have a tax evasion strategy under the Bribery Act and the Criminal Finance Act. So they do have in place some very, very, very good systems. Um, the response from universities varied. Um, some universities would send you a letter or an email with answers to the questions. Other universities under their statutory right refused to answer some questions in relation to exemption. So not all universities answered every question. Um, and the responses varied. Some were quite detailed. Some were a number. Some were yes, no. Um, so the, the, the responses varied. So one of the things your research uh, uncovered was that uh, universities accept cash as payment for tuition fees and living expenses uh, and so forth. Can you explain how this is, you know, how is this a red flag or, and what did you think about this? Um, I think the, the cash payments are interesting. Um, I, think, I mean, do you just show up to the University of Oxford with like a suitcase <laughs> of cash? I mean, I, is I it honestly, cheap to I go want, there? I honestly and... would, wouldn't know how the universities would accept cash payments because obviously it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not involved with that particular institution. But I think what it does suggest is that there is a potential vulnerability there. The research didn't identify that wasn't part of the project any illicit money and we've not made any sort of statements to that extent but it does show that there's a vulnerability and i think that sort of illustrates and, and ties into what the times foi request four or five years ago found because you sorry to interrupt you but the universities they since they're not uh, with the regulation and so forth they are not required to then go into the deep end on the source of funds right like if you show up with a million pounds at a bank they will question you about the source of funds but as a university student you show up with your tuition fee in cash they just accept it and well, no source it, of fund the, investigation that depends really so a lot of it will depend on what training is provided by the university their finance team and some universities have a money laundering reporting officer so a lot of that will depend on what the staff are advised in terms of, of industry guidance and i think that's something that and we may come back to this a little bit later on in terms of what the industry could do is a common guidelines across all universities, I suppose, in terms of what could be deemed to be a red flag. I think if, if 
someone turned up with a rucksack full of cash, I think that would probably <laughs> indicate a red flag to Let's the hope. finance officer. And there was a, a study in Canada a few years ago that suggested that several students at, um, at Canadian universities would turn up and pay for multiple semesters fees in cash. Yeah. And a rucksack with Canadian dollars in. So it's, and it might be a common way to pay from different jurisdictions if you're an international overseas student. But ultimately, if someone did pay a large sum of fees in cash, I think that would be an automatic red flag. And then the university and maybe the financial institution would do a customer due diligence, maybe enhance due diligence. But how far they investigate that, of course, is, is dependent upon which financial institution works for the university or whether the university contracts a third party to help them mm. monitor transactions that they deem to be unusual or suspicious. Maybe it's best to just go over to a government-funded model so the universities don't have to have yeah. this problem. <laughs> maybe, 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 yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's a topic for a different uh, discussion. So what legislation is currently then in place to kind of protect universities? So there are um, primarily, I'd say, four pieces of law. Um, so from a money laundering perspective, you have the 2002 Proceeds of Crime Act, uh, you then have the 2000 Terrorism Act, and you also then have that supported by the uh, 2017 Money Laundering Regulations. They've been updated in 2019 in terms of implementing a variety of sort of updates to extend the scope of, of the regulations. Given that some universities are also bound by the FCA rules and handbooks, you could possibly argue that the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 applies. And I think that's interesting because the... FCA has significant enforcement powers. So if we've seen some very well-documented examples of um, financial institutions not complying with the FCA regulations, no evidence of money laundering, but of course you've got examples of, I think, uh, Danske Bank has been fined, Coach Bank, as I'm yeah. sure listeners will be very well familiar with. And of course you then got the prosecution of NatWest, uh, the first UK bank to be prosecuted for money laundering, and that was convicted, I think, two years ago and paid a significant fee, a penalty of about £264 million. So that could have a significant impact that if a university is authorised by the FCA in terms of lending and credit facilities, potentially that opens the university and maybe its staff to what we call the credible deterrent strategy of the FCA. So this is a two-part enforcement strategy where they will instigate proceedings against the firm mm. and also the MLRO as well. It's pretty rare they've used that, but it does show that the FCA does take financial crime very seriously. So it'd be those those four particular laws. Interesting. You said the researcher was anonymized, mm -hmm. but I'm sure you must have heard some war, like uh, real examples or some, uh, you know, that you know, that you. Uh, I don't know if you have any of those you can share. Anonymized, um, of course. Yeah, you heard I mean, some horror stories. Uh, I can't go into the to the universities because that was a, that was a part of our methodology in terms of anonymizing um, all the replies. You do find some very um, scary cases where students have been targeted by a criminal gang, um, and, and again, all, all the, the the published ones are available in, in in the paper. But what you tend to find is that I think with the cost of living crisis, students are particularly vulnerable. You know. Parents, my son, our son started university this week, for example. So you're aware that financially it's, it's tough for parents across the sector and also tough for students. So what you tend to find is that in the cost of living crisis, you know, students are in more need of, of finances and financial support. And from speaking to police officers and those involved in uh, key stakeholders, students can be contacted via TikTok, Instagram. 
I'm a Facebook generation, so I, I don't even know what TikTok is, and I know it exists, but in terms of my age. But of course, if they contacted on Snapchat, and a student could say, I could be had a message, right, I'd like to pay you £1,000, can you transfer £10,000 for me from my account into yours to a third party? The student goes, oh, I can make some money for this. And what's concerning is that some very good research by the Nationwide and CIFAS have indicated that students are actually willing for their bank account to be used by a third party. Yeah, so now we're into the topic of money mules. Exactly, yeah, which is very worrying. So you see cases where students have been targeted and, of course, they then don't realise they're part of a money laundering transaction, which is a primary offence under the 2002 Approaches of Crime Act. So you get some cases where students have been unwillingly involved and end up with a conviction and, of course, their career, their credit rating will be affected forever. Mm. Contrast to that... You've also got students who are directly involved in the money laundering scam and are heavily linked into organised criminal gangs. We've seen convictions like in Scotland this year and recently in Northern Ireland, where the amount. What of were money, those convictions? One in Scotland in March was I think eighty-five thousand pounds was laundered with the student involved in the case. Mm. So they've got some links potentially into the criminal gang themselves. And the National Crime Agency published a very important study in twenty nineteen that indicated that international students are susceptible to being targeted by organised criminal gangs, overseas criminal gangs, to launder money in different jurisdictions. Well, there's been a lot of these cases in Norway, Mm. Denmark as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, now with mobile payment options, just recruiting um, young people to, oh, if if I transfer you uh, 50 pounds, you can keep uh, 20% if you wire it further. So uh, yeah, the financial criminals are always very smart to think about the next way to launder money and it's hard to trace as well if you just get you know money fueled through links and links of students Absolutely. it's hard to keep track yeah and i think if you look at um you know again i've, I've had to look into this because i'm of a particular age that doesn't use snapchat but i believe that messages will, will be deleted automatically so in terms of any defense a student has they got pieces that use my phone yeah but the message is gone so you can see how criminals are you know targeting vulnerable individuals whether they're in school college or university, all of them are, you know, I think as soon as a, a child has a bank account or an app, they are susceptible to being targeted by these individuals. So it does show that white-collar criminals tend to be a little bit ahead of where preventative measures can be used against them. Do you see, uh, do you think students will go to prison for this in the next year or in the years to come? You will see more of these cases? I hope and- not. Um, I think what we have seen is that those students who, who have been convicted, um, if they've been sort of induced into uh, not knowing that this is a, a sort of a money laundering transaction, then they, the sentencing appears to be lenient and the judge takes into consideration all factors and more of a proportionate response. But those students who are directly involved in the scam or attempting to defraud fellow students or even involved with the criminal gang, they have been given custodial sentences. So hopefully we won't see any more examples, but I, I I couldn't guarantee that. So how do you think society should try to stop this problem of money mules? I think that, I think what we found in the research is that there's a number of recommendations that we made. I think that the loophole within the law could be closed. Um, so we've sort of suggested some recommendations to the UK government. Whether they will adapt them, of course, is, is up to them. We've had some discussions with the National Crime Agency. Uh, they're very well aware of the problem. We feel that there should be sort of mandatory training for university staff and for students in terms of 
their induction process, for example. And so we've had some discussions with the Welsh Government. We've sent the report to the Scottish Government. We've been liaising with uh, the UK Fraud Forum as part of their Money Mule project. But I think from a society perspective, you know, students have to be aware what threat could be. And if somebody offers you free money, there's probably yeah. a con or a scam involved. So it's too good to be true. So it's just trying to make people aware of what, I suppose, the, the red flags should be. Mm. Um, but to educate people, I think that's the most important thing because criminals will target, you know, you probably know this from your listeners in other podcasts you've done, will target many, many different sectors, whether it's high-end goods, whether it's the, the financial sector, the credit sector. I think orientation, yeah, has changed a bit since I started university then. In 2008, <laughs> no one no one talked about money yeah. mules then, and now it's could become part of like the mandatory yeah. training. I think that's what we'd like. I think, yeah, and, and it, you know, it's important to, the important thing is to pitch the delivery at the appropriate level. So if I went into a school next week and pitched my talk on financial crime, that would be why you're discussing that, that, that with, you know, people who are in comprehensive school, for example. So it's about making the training at the appropriate level, whether that's in a junior school, a comprehensive school, in a college or, or a university. So that, I think, is an important part of that, just to make them aware of what threats it can provide. So I just want to go back to the topic of um, the universities accepting funds yep. uh, that might come from uh, uh, crime, profits from crime or, you know, cash payments and, and that topic. So a study by the Russell Group showed that the UK universities face an average shortfall of approximately £2,500 on every, you know, home undergraduate student. Do you think that will make universities more willing to kind of accept overseas students who might come from regimes that are not necessarily like completely in line with our beliefs and might not be so interested in looking into the source of funds? I think it's a difficult question to answer. And I, I mean, I've, I've seen the parliamentary report that also made the same um, statement about seven to 10 days ago. Um, it, it, I really couldn't answer it specifically for universities because of admissions policy. Every, everyone's got a different admissions policy. You know, I suppose if you look at the publicly available cases, it does suggest that international students do tend to be targeted by criminal gangs to launder money or to be part of the process. That does not to say, of course, there are some UK domestic-based students. Um, I would be very surprised if universities altered anything in their admissions process. Um, so I think to answer that question, probably not. I, I no. wouldn't feel comfortable sort of uh, no. even speculating because the, the research really didn't look at that particular aspect. It looked at the vulnerabilities presented to the current UK system. Did your research look anything into if this cash payment and so forth also applied to donations that the universities get and so forth? Yeah, we didn't look at donations. That There was um, an FOI request last summer by another think tank that looked at that in particular. Okay. And some of the results were very interesting and they're very well publicly documented. That I mean, I won't mention names, but the report, would, if I can get a link, I'll be send it to you and, and the listeners. There were donations made to a variety of, of Ivy US universities mm. that were deemed to be rather suspicious from certain individuals in certain jurisdictions. So yeah, it, again, it raised a number of concerns, I think, regarding donations given by whether they're former university students in terms of alumni 
all gifts given. But again, that uh, that's something sadly we didn't cover as part of this project. I think that was I think that's another paper in itself. And when you have a limited word count yeah. um, for an, uh, an article, we we couldn't fit everything in, unfortunately. The next one, then the next research, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but let's get into the real world consequences here. So let's say a university then accepts some funds whose source of fund is not completely clear or it actually may be from criminal uh, procedures. So how damaging could that be? Or like, try to paint me the picture, how this, what will happen in the future if this becomes a Well, if, if we take a hypothetical example yeah. where University X takes a cash payment and the university uh, investigators look into this and a little deemed to be suspicious. And then provided they file a suspicious activity report, then of course there are no grounds for prosecution or financial penalty imposed. Hypothetically, however, if I suppose a payment is taken and no action is taken in terms of it's not deemed to be suspicious, but then a whistleblower or maybe there's some evidence given to the police, it, it does have potential criminal liability Part of the difficulty at the moment regarding the, the criminal liability is that because universities aren't regulated by an agency, their only potential avenue would be the Financial Conduct Authority or prosecution for uh, the Bribery Act or Criminal Finances Act. Now, what's intriguing currently in Parliament is that we now have the Corporate Transparency Bill, which has been debated in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. It's been, it's been like watching tennis back and forth at the moment. <laughs> so what they're trying to do is the to extend the what's called the failure to prevent model. Mm -hmm. So that means that commercial entities, um, companies, universities, education sector must have a sort of counter-bribery policy in place or a counter-tax evasion policy in place. Now, the new bill currently includes fraud. So it'll be intriguing to find out how that could affect the sector. But there were some demands from some members of the House of Lords to include money laundering to extend that model. Now, last Monday night, I believe, the government decided not to include that failure to prevent money laundering crime. Uh. So I think in terms of liability, potentially some could lie with the FCA. And I think, as I said to you, really, that then opens up the potentially a financial penalty. And that can be unlimited and then potentially prosecution for the MLRO if the FCA feel that there's evidence to justify that. But again, there's been no penalty imposed on any UK university and no linked into a UK university as a member of staff in terms of compliance team has been prosecuted from the evidence that we can find. So it's it's a hypothetical. It's a hypothetical. Potentially, that's the sort of avenues that would exist for them. So maybe the universities then in a couple of years, they would uh, need to take the same faith as banks, staffing up, doing KYC, AML, all these, uh, yeah, I mean, running these programs yeah. like the banks need to do now. I think a lot of them do, and, and they do have in place some, some you know, there are some amazing amazing initiatives that universities put on in terms of KYC, enhanced due diligence, they train staff, they engage with students. I think that it's about consistency. Yeah. Now, whether or not they'll be able to use the same software that banks will use, that's you know, banks obviously will work with the private sector. They'll have access to multiple uh, data sources in terms of their customer due diligence. So whether that will work within the higher education sector, um, I'll have to wait to see, I think. So you published this research like a week ago, and it got a lot of attention in the media. Yeah. How was that? Um, Nerve-wracking. <laughs> I think, um, I think as we were saying sort of in, in the pre-meeting, that normally with an academic paper, you, you publish it, it's on the repository, It'll be read by academic scholars, happy with that. 
Um, but yeah, we we, had, we did an interview with The Guardian. We added some quotations with The Times Higher. Um, it was initially published on The Conversation. So that's how I think the press got, got hold of it. Yeah, it, it's been nice to be involved in that path. I don't do it very often. So I think to publicise the possible vulnerability and to try to get um, this on the government's radar is very important. I mean, I think as I said in the interviews, it's never been about name and shaming. That's never been part of the project. It's about indicating the vulnerabilities to students and to a sector I've worked in for 25 years. And I'm passionate about ed education. So if we can raise a little bit of awareness as to what the threat could be yeah. and the sector responds, um, I think that's probably the ultimate objective of the project. So Cardiff, have they stopped taking cash payment now after your research? <laughs> I think, as I said to you earlier, with regards <laughs> to everything within within the um, the, the reports have been anonymised, so uh, I don't think it would be appropriate to answer that question. But what we have seen is an increased number of universities that now have stopped accepting cash payments. So that's been one benefit yeah. following the Times expose four or five years ago. So that's been really good to see, but it's a bit worrying that we found that cash payments had been increased from roughly £10 million a year for the year that we looked at the £12 million, so an increase of about 20%. So you've been in the financial crime prevention space for quite a long time. So who do you think we should invite to our podcast next and what topic would you have them talk about? Wow, where to start? That's a good question, that is. It's like doing a PhD viva again. I think that what would be intriguing would be somebody on fraud from the government perspective. I think that fraud is, is a... As you, your listeners will know, is a massive threat to UK security. It's a national security threat. But we've got a UK fraud strategy that doesn't recognise the link between organised crime and fraud and terrorism and fraud. So I think that would be a very intriguing one to look at, I think, just to sort of push ministers or civil servants, well, you've got these strategies, but why doesn't fraud recognise terrorism and recognise organised crime? I think that would be intriguing. Other areas I think would be in interest would be failure to prevent what do you mean by... Uh... So failure to prevent is the UK model to tackle bribery. Essentially, it's about corporate crime. Ooh. So where the crime is committed by a corporate entity. And UK common law rules make it almost impossible for the SFO, HMRC, to convict a company for financial crime. We've got this wonderful archaic rule called the identification doctrine. Now, this is where a prosecutor... So imagine you've got a multinational financial company with offices in, say, 25 countries, and that company could be involved in a fraud or bribery scandal. Now, according to the identification doctrine, the prosecutor must prove which one individual in the company authorised that fraud or had the controlling mind of the will of the company. I know, which way is the wind blowing? Because it's impossible to... to that's, so that's, the, that's the case of Tesco against Natras. So failure to prevent tries to overcome that common law problem by making sure that companies have in place a counter-bribery or counter-tax evasion mm. perspective. And what we have seen are what's called the Deferred Prosecution Agreement um, in the UK for the last, uh, get my years right, um, 10 years since the Crime and Courts Act of 2013. Now, a DPA is essentially a plea bargain. So a company would pay a significant financial penalty they would pay a disgorgement order, so they'd reimburse maybe the victims of a fraud and alter their internal corporate governance structures. But another study we did a couple of years ago found that a lot of these companies are persistent repeat offenders. So the deferred prosecution agreement doesn't necessarily stop that misfeasance in culture. Yeah. So one prime example is HSBC, who were convicted in America in 20, 
2012, 2010, sorry, um, of money laundering scandals with Russian gold criminal gangs, drug cartels, and I paid a massive fine of $1.9 billion. So they then admittedly got things wrong, implemented the new corporate governance structure. But they have been subjected and there's been subjected to multiple fines. So you question whether or not there is that deterrence within the use of deferred prosecution agreements. So that tries to circumvent the common law rules, which of course a significant problem. Very good tips for two <laughs> episodes or maybe even more there. But Nick, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not on Twitter. Um, and they can find me on the Cardiff University website. And uh, yeah, very happy to take any questions from anybody who's got them. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to go and check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please also leave a review. To get in touch with The Laundry team, you can comment on the Strice LinkedIn page or email laundry at strice.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Marit. Our producer was Matthew Dunn-Miles. Our engineers were Nicholas Ton, Paul Allen and Dominic Dallargy. The Laundry is proudly produced by Strice, an AML intelligence system. Find out more about us at strice.ai. See you next time. Yeah, money make a world go